I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I made no campaign promises because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. Mr. King makes up his mind by tomorrow that he's so sick he has to go away for a year or two. Monday morning, every paper in the state except his will carry the story I'm going to give him. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me! Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, as promised, a few podcasts ago, I did a rundown of the top 10 David Fincher films before Mank with Jack Howard. And uh, we said we'd do two things that we would reconvene to discuss Mank when Jack has seen it. But also, because Mank is about the writing of Citizen Kane, we were going to do a podcast about Citizen Kane because this was a kind of Citizen Kane, is it the greatest movie ever made or, or, or is there an alternative view? So firstly, welcome to the podcast, Jack Howard. Hey, Jack. Hello. And for nice our, to see you. For our Patreon uh, uh, patrons. You get what you pay for. You, yeah. You know, Jack is wearing his Christmas hat. Um, <laughs> I thought it would be a nice little thing for everybody who's, you know, if you're paying extra, you want to get that bit extra. And so everyone who's listening to this, you can imagine me wearing a, a, a Santa's hat. But I had, if you just go that extra mile, you get the visual the visual compliment. I had a so this has reminded me, this is apropos of nothing. I have a friend who um, in, an, in an earlier life was a strippergram <laughs> and... Um, what yeah yeah so uh, was this friend you is it no 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 this is no i mean i wish i wish that in an earlier i was i was once on the cover of um of a uh, twice in fact i was on the cover of a uh, a magazine in manchester called gay life um that i used to work at a company called uh city life and we we were a workers co-op and we so we owned our own magazine and we published a magazine called gay life which was um a bi-weekly uh, magazine uh, uh, that was distributed Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield. It was quite, a, it was a very, very good magazine as it happened, but they had no money. They never had any money at all. And, um, and, and, and so there was one time uh, I was really proud of this. I'm, I was like, I must've been uh, nine, 20, 21 or something. And they said, oh, we got to do, we got to, there's a, there was a local store that was selling, you know, clothes that was sort of quite hip on the scene at the time. And they, they said, we need a, we need a model. Would you mind? I said, what, you want me to be a model? They went, yeah, yeah. You know, you look all right. So <laughs> I, I went, yeah, of course, of course. So anyway, so I went off and did, did this thing and they took up, you know, took a bunch of pictures and it was, you know, it was like vests and because I mean, I haven't always looked like this. You know, it was a time when I was kind of young and thin and all the rest of it. So it was me and a couple of other guys and, you know, and, you know, like... So, so. I don't know what you're talking about, Mark. I think you look great. Thank you. And then later on, they were doing an issue um, and it was it was, uh, it was a winter issue and it was a, do a, a kind of awareness thing for, uh, because this is, this was in, in the days of, I mean, the, the comparatively early days of, of, of AIDS, I suppose. Um, 
well, not comparing. I mean, it, it was in the days of in which you know the, the AIDS awareness was a big was a very big thing. Anyway, so I did this thing. So I did this, you know, modeling, and it was like vests and all that sort of stuff, you know. And uh, and because it, it, it's a, this one thing that was somebody. Do you have with, these photos anywhere that we can see? So, yeah, somewhere. I mean, I was really proud of them. You know, it's should like, I just Google Mark Kermode gay life? It, it's possible. Um, Let me have a look. Give it a go. You have to you have to put put gay life in inverted commas. Um, I imagine gay life magazine. Um, anyway, to, to finish this story, while you Google that, yeah. Then they were doing it was a winter awareness thing, and they were doing a thing about, and it was an AIDS awareness thing about about keeping warm, about not getting you know not getting ill during thing. And so they they said said uh, we need somebody on we need uh, somebody on the cover looking warm in a cold winter setting. So me and this other guy that were working in the office went out and did a did a fashion show, well not fashion show, you know, sh- shots of us wearing warm clothing, you know, hugging and keeping warm. And it was the thing it said, you know, Gay Life keep warm this Christmas. And I was a cover star. I was on the front cover of Gay Life magazine. I was so proud of it. It was actually a you re- should that should be amongst all your office memorabilia and stuff. It should be there it, somewhere. It's, it's um, I can't it, find anything. I can find Gay Life um, magazine from Manchester magazine, but I can't find. Your cover specifically, which is a shame. I think we should put it to the listeners to try and track this down. Yeah, it is. It is somewhere. I mean, funnily enough, years later, I bumped into the guy, the other guy in the in the in the shoot, and he had a copy of it. But I'm pretty sure I've got a copy up in my um, up in my attic somewhere. Anyway, I can't remember. I don't know how we got there. Oh yes. Anyway, uh, I used to know somebody else who was a strippergram. And yes, there we go. Santa hat. Fine, I found thanks. my way back now. And, and it was there was a different amount of money depending on what costume he wore. And it just when you said people should get the money that they're that they're wearing, he did one as a gorilla gram, and he did one as a vicar gram, and he did. One I should as point a, out at this point, I think I'm not just wearing a Santa hat. No, but the, but the whole point about it is if you were a stripper gram, then presumably the hat is the one. You know, what's the Joe Cocker song? You could keep your hat on. <laughs> he made a, he made a perfect. He was a he's a very he is still a very good friend of mine. I won't tell you. Do you think if I needed to sort of earn a bit on the side, that's something probably, I could maybe go for? You could probably get away with doing that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll open up an OnlyFans. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have no idea where that how that story came. Up. I'll tell you what though, Jack. I will go up in the loft and try and find this picture because I was I was so proud of it because I was I looked. I mean, you know how that. Do thing- you think you look a bit sexy? I look handsome because that thing that when you're old, the thing that everyone when they're old says to people when you're young, you have no idea how good you look. You know, most people when they're in their teenage years, their early 20s, they've got no idea how fabulous they look. And I guarantee you, you will look back on yourself when you're nearly 60 as I am and go, wow, why wasn't it that I was just walking around going, I look fabulous? (laughs) And of course, it's one of the great ironies of life isn't it that when you're young and you do look but you don't know because you, you're difficult and all but then you get to my age and you're a fat-headed you know belligerent old fart but you actually look like a you know like an like an ass and uh anyway so there we go it's um i disagree i think that you look great well, i think you've aged like a fine wine <laughs> yeah i look like a bottle of wine thin at the i top think and you and i should be on a magazine cover <laughs> Now, or just invests. Listen to the Kermode on yeah. Film podcast, and this is what you get. Yeah. <laughs> was, it was, it was, uh, yeah. Anyway, well, there we go. You know, it's 
is one of those one of those things. So that's what Santa hats makes you think of. Santa it makes you go down that road. Santa hat <laughs> made me think of my friend who was. And anyway, that, and, is, that was like a Citizen Kane esque backstory in was. terms of like how we got to here's, Santa hat. Here's the punchline of the story about the strippergram guy who used to have he used to have two a bunch of different costumes. One of them was a gorilla costume, and then he would strip off and he'd be wearing like a like a Tarzan loincloth. Um, and then the other one was he would dress as a vicar and he was coming, he was going to a gig and he was late and he was speeding because he was a bit of a reckless driver and he got stopped by the police and they let him off because he was a vicar. No, yes. that's a storyline from a sitcom. That that's true. not something that happens I, in reality. I promise you this is true. <laughs> and he had like underneath, I think he had the like full Rocky Horror, you know, back. Oh, sorry, father. And stockings on, but he was dressed as a vicar. So they pulled him over and he went, look, I'm really sorry. I'm in a, I'm in a hurry for a job. And they went, oh, of course, you know, off you go. <laughs> God bless you, father. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, there are... Manchester in the 1980s. What's that? It's that Hunter Thompson phrase, and it was a very special time and place, uh, you know, and part to be a part of. And no mix of words or music can conjure up. There was just something about Manchester in the 1980s. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Anyway, citizen. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. <laughs> I, I wasn't know, alive. But, but you'll have your own. You know, you'll have your own version of this when you're old and fat like me. You'll go. I used to do this podcast. I used to look fabulous. Yeah. I look so great. I managed, I managed to pull off a Santa hat once. Anyway. <laughs> no pun intended. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theatre, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theatre. And I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction. But frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. It's a pretty nice ballyhoo. But here are some of our real Mercury people. This is the first time you've seen most of them on the screen. Hey, uh, give Joe a little light. Thanks. Now smile for the folks, Joe. So, Jack, have you watched Citizen Kane and was it the first time? No, it wasn't the first time I'd seen it. I'd okay. seen it before, but I hadn't seen it for a number of years. So I was excited to revisit it. And I I mean, actually, it's, I think it's worth mentioning. We were supposed to do this podcast about a week ago, but yes. Mark had an emergency. Yeah, sorry. Um, that's fine. Uh, but I watched Citizen Kane and genuinely one of my first thoughts was, you mean I rewatched Citizen Kane for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and there speaks a true cineast. Okay, so, well, look, just if, in case anyone hasn't seen it, and one of the reasons we're discussing this is because Mank, the new Fincher film, is about the writing of Citizen Kane. Um, and I have issues with that film, which we'll talk about later. But... So essentially, Cain begins with this figure dying and the, the last thing they say is Rosebud. And then there's an investigation into what was it, what was their life about? You know, and it's basically a kind of look, who was this man? You know, what's there? And, and we then see the story, the rise of a character whose life kind of very closely mirrors and weaves in and out with uh, that of... Um, uh, Charles Foster Kane is the character in the film and William Randolph Hearst is the, the real-life media mogul um, upon whom that character is kind of largely based. And the film is considered 
by many cineasts to be the greatest film ever made. Uh, recently, it was knocked off the top spot. I mean, recently, within the last 10 years, maybe longer than that, um, it was knocked off the top spot in the sight and sound poll by Vertigo. And this was a big thing because Vertigo taking over from Citizen Kane was, everyone was, oh, you know, oh, you know, the world's going to come to an end. But no, it isn't. But they're both great films. I do genuinely think that Citizen Kane is every bit as good as everyone says it is. Yeah, it's, I completely agree. It's great. really quite good, isn't it? It really <laughs> is quite good. And the thing, when, when there was a Citizen Kane anniversary, and then there was this thing about Kane being knocked off the top spot of, uh, of um, the sight and sound poll, and there was a bunch of interviews, and they, they, were, they were interviewing people and saying, what do you think of Citizen Kane? And because I was one of the film critics in the country that pe people may know, I did a few interviews about it and I said the same thing every time. And the thing I said was this, people forget how much fun it is because it's gone down as the, the most important, the best, you know, you know, incredible deep focus photography and techniques that were learned by Wells, you know, on the fly. I mean, this is, it was his first film. It was first feature film. He didn't know what he was doing. People forget how much fun, how, how much of an adventure, how much, just riotous stuff there is going on in Kane. And I think one of the things that puts people off is the idea that oh, I've got to watch the greatest movie ever made. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's like a burden, isn't it? Like it to is. go, yeah, just to sit down and be like, okay, this is something I've got to tick off my list. It's kind of how I felt when I hadn't seen the Godfather films earlier this year. It felt like a task. Yes. And I think actually I brought that to the films, so I probably should end up rewatching them and, and having a, a calmer experience but with citizen kane i think that that is tenfold and it's interesting i re i watched citizen kane a little bit like the way i watched 2001 a space odyssey and i absolutely love 2001 but what i mean by that is that you've got to put yourself in the mindset of this didn't exist like this was the first time things like this were invented so when you see things in 2001 like video calls or sliding doors <laughs> like you know, like that those didn't exist prior to this and citizen kane is the same thing like there's certain moments in it where i'm like oh that's a cool little editing trick oh no 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 that was the first time that was ever done yeah. and everything since then has been emulating it and actually the thing that i came away with this time was probably it's the i i, I in my opinion, I'd say it's maybe the most influential film I've ever seen. Yes. And, and and that is because when I was watching it, I was going, oh, that reminds me of Scorsese. Or that reminds me of Fincher. Or that reminds me of Sorkin. Or that reminds me of Edgar Wright. That, that reminds me of Wes Anderson. I was just constantly like, make, so like the, the whole story feels like, you know, the sort of Goodfellas, Martin Scorsese, rags to riches and the downfall of a character that he has done. Some of the editing, the match shots and stuff feel like Edgar Wright. The storybook narrative of how did this man become the man he was feels like the same structure as the Grand Budapest Hotel. Everything about it feels like it's influenced future filmmakers and they've brought their own styles to those stories, but everything feels like it comes from Citizen Kane in some way. And, and actually, I think the weird thing is that it, that it does um, there are many films which people cite as being, you know, genuinely groundbreaking. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that about 2001 and the video call. When I first saw 2001, I know it came out in the 60s, I saw it in the early 70s. The thing of him calling his daughter on a video call was, oh my God. Now, of course, you and I speaking to each other on Zoom, and exactly, and everyone's got a mobile phone. And they get annoyed if they can't get a signal while they're at the top of a mountain um, because we've all got so used to it. In terms of Kane, I mean, there are sort of like individual techniques. I mean, the whole thing about the deep focus photography, it, 
it the film looks great the film looks it looks like it's happening in an area that in a thing that you can believe in the whole thing about the illusion of the camera coming down and then going through a pane of glass you know coming into the house well, nowadays, of course, we're all completely used to a shot that starts outside and goes up and goes through something. It's stitched together by CGI or whatever. Yeah. Back then, what was remarkable about that wasn't just that the effect was a, was a really clever way to do it, but I guarantee you that the audience weren't thinking, I wonder how they did that. What the audience were doing was following the emotional narrative of that shot, which is, look, we're going into something with you know we, we're going even the entire opening sequence does that the editing of it like it, you get closer and closer to the house with every cut when it's taking you around this huge gothic mansion and you're getting closer and closer to it, it everything about it is bringing you into the story it's using these techniques to 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 tell you a story but the, um, but, the, but the genius of that is that what so what what they're doing is it's a cutting edge film in terms of its technical innovation. I mean, in terms of technology, it is as innovative as 2001. And that's a, it's a really good comparison, Jack, because everyone thinks about special effects in 2001. People don't really talk about special effects in Citizen Kane because they're not, you don't think of them as special effects, but everything to do with the way that the film is composed, the artistry in the composition is so brilliant because you don't see it. What happens is you get emotionally engaged. I mean, of course, I mean, one of the things I should ask you this, what's the great big plot hole in Citizen Kane? I don't know. It doesn't, nothing, nothing stands out to me immediately. Okay. What's the, what's the whole premise of the film? What, what are they trying to, what are they trying to figure out? They're trying to figure out what Rosebud is. Okay. And why are they trying to figure out what Rosebud is? Because journalists want to find out who this man is to tell a better yeah, story. Sure. But why Why do they know the word Rosebud? Oh, it's the massive plot hole. No one was there when he yeah. when he said it. Yeah. No, but, and it doesn't matter. Kane yeah, you're right. dies lonely and he says Rosebud. And the whole of the film is about what does that mean? And you go, well, no, how, how did anyone know? I mean, yeah. he wasn't being videotaped. Didn't think about it once, never thought about that. Exactly. And the reason you don't think about it is because it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. And I, I hate stuff like that. In, in When any, anyone pick, picks up stuff like that within a film, if it's like, why did this happen? Or, or how did that person know that? I'm like, because it's a story and we're not dealing in literal terms because all this is a metaphor for something or it's a, a device to tell you, you know, a, whatever. Like, it doesn't always need to be like, well, oh, that doesn't make sense, does it? Shut up. Oh, there's no gravity in space. How did they drop those bombs in the last jet? Shut up. Like, it doesn't matter, does it? They're just trying to tell you an entertaining story. If that's what you're focusing on, you're focusing on the wrong stuff. But also, but the key, and what you said there, the first thing you said there is because it's a story. And that's the point. And, and I, I think that that's... I think one of the reasons that you and I, no matter what we think about films, whether we is that we 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 fundamentally agree on 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 the, on an, on that there is such a thing as telling a story. I mean, a film is like a book or a play or a poem or whatever it is. It's to do with telling a story. Citizen Kane is a story, and it is a story that is so brilliantly told by a master who literally sits you down and goes, "Okay, here we go," and five minutes into Kane. You're listening to the whole, you know, and you you are as 
it, it wrapped up in that mystery in that world as anything else. Then the rise of Cain, the way in which Cain becomes the sort of the monstrous figure is genius because your, your relationship with him is not simply one of, you know, oh, because obviously we, we all know that the whole thing about, you know, what happens to Cain is that as wealth accumulates and everything, you know, does, does the rest of his life, how's the rest of his life change? And obviously since he's kind of based to some extent on um, uh, William Randolph Hearst, and we know something about William Randolph Hearst, you know, we're all kind of making a slight moral, but it is perfectly possible to, there are moments in Cain very early on when you're completely on Cain's side, you are rooting for him. He's an interesting character and and it's a sort of Shakespearean fall. And even things like the brilliant sequence, which demonstrates that, you know, that his marriage is falling apart because the table gets bigger. It's early. Gerald, do you know how long you kept me waiting last night while you went to the newspaper for 10 minutes? What do you do in a newspaper in the middle of the night? Emily, my dear, your only correspondent is the Inquirer. Sometimes I think I'd prefer a rival of flesh and blood. Oh, Emily, I don't spend that much time on the newspaper. It isn't just the time. It's what you print, attacking the president. You mean Uncle John? I mean the president of the United States. He's still Uncle John. He's still a well-meaning fathead who's running a pack of high-pressure crooks around his administration. This whole oil scandal. He happens to be the president, Charles, not you. That's a mistake that will be corrected one of these days. Your Mr. Bernstein sent Junior the most incredible atrocity yesterday, Charles. I simply can't have it in the nursery. Mr. Bernstein is apt to pay a visit to the nursery now and then. Does he have to? Yes. Really, Charles? People will think... What I tell them to think. Brilliant. Yes. It's genius. That's the sort of thing like in 12 Angry Men when they, they, the room gets smaller. Again, another brilliant comparison. Visual storytelling. And what I, what I, what I love about it is I, I can just imagine the... I mean, what we know for a fact is that a lot of those things happened. This is why Mank is interesting. And I, I'm very interested to know what you think about Mank because Mank basically says that Herman Mankiewicz wrote Cain, um, you know, without Wells. And this is all based on a, 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 a long, a very famous article by Pauline Kael, who argued that Wells had effectively stolen uh, the glory that, that, that Mank should have had. And it's not true. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Mank, I mean, as we now know, if you look at the various drafts of Kane, Mank did write an original draft and then it was rewritten and then it was rewritten and then it passed between. And what the most recent studies ended up saying is, you know, not only was Wells's input uh, substantial, but it was also definitive um, that, that Kane is Kane because of Wells. Uh, it's really now, interesting that you you bring that up as well because there's been some articles recently about why David Fincher doesn't take writing credits because his films are so absolutely David Fincher films and he has such a heavy hand in the script and there's wonderful you know nerdy behind the scenes footage of him and Aaron Sorkin going line by line yeah. in a just a boardroom together and questioning what everything means. He probably if he wanted to could have argued to take a writing credit on that because of how he shaped it and how he's telling that story and I don't th I don't think he wants and he even says this I don't I'm not a writer. He's a director. He's somebody who interprets 
the work in, in makes it a visual story. And I think that's exactly what but, Orson Welles probably did in, in okay, some but, respects. But, okay, but the Welles story is complicated by the fact that Welles had a contract um, that basically he was to write and direct a film. And in the original, in the contract, he had he had the right to sole authorship. Um, he did indeed bring uh, Mank on originally to to ghostwrite essentially. And then what happened was that you know Mank said he decided that he did want credit. And the idea that Wells then stiffed him for credit isn't true because not only does Mank get credit, he gets first credit, and he gets first credit according to more than one reputable source, because when the scroll first came in, it said, you know, Orson Welles and Herman, and Wells said, no, you put him first. So there's no question that Wells was, you know, egotistical and driven and all those other things. But there is, it's also absolutely not true that what he tried to do was to steal credit. What he did was he gave credit where it was due because the fact of the matter is that well that um that that uh, Kane was written by Mankiewicz and Wells but it wasn't just written by Mankiewicz and the idea that it was is kind of you know fanciful and and uh, and, and and actually as i said largely debunked i'll be interested to see what i think of the film then cuz i almost was going into it knowing it was kind i was almost thinking about it like it's always based on the, an urban legend that it, that it was written solely by one person and then awesome like it almost felt like it was yeah, based it on a rumor or something yeah but or, that's it, but that's it's it's because because Kane has become what it has, the authorship of Kane has become, a, you know, a hot topic. And it, it essentially all dates back to this Pauline Kale article in which Kale didn't speak to Wells for a start. Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, look, I understand entirely uh, the whole thing about writers, you know, being uncredited, uncredited in Hollywood. It is true that directors, you know, often get more credit than they deserve and writers get less credit than they deserve. I, this is absolutely true. But the idea that, Wells was not involved substantially and definitively in the writing of Kane is simply debunked. It's just it not- also just doesn't seem like a big issue to me personally when I look at it because I'm like they're both credited. Like I, I understand as well yeah. that if somebody wanted to dispute the idea that like I wrote it and then he took cr- credit for co-writing it with me, but it seems like I mean Orson Wells not only did he direct it but he's also the star. Yes. So I don't dispute the idea that he would have had an absolute. Uh, authorship over the way that this film was sure. made. Well, I'll tell you, I just don't. I just don't doubt that at all. I'll tell you, there's an interesting case, and I, I won't mention the director, although actually they have spoken about this themselves. There is a director of whose work I am a great fan, who wrote and directed a film that was based on a real life event, and the film was brought to them by a company who'd been trying to get it off the ground um, and just couldn't. And there was an existing script that wasn't working. And they came to this director and said, look, you know, would you be interested in, in because she, she was a writer, uh, she was all a writer before she was a director. And she said, okay, but what I'll do is I'll take the story and I'll start again. And so she did a page one, absolute, you know, didn't, and no reference to the script, wrote the script from scratch. The script, the film was shot with her name on the script. And it was her script. I mean, it, you, 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 I, you can, it's her script. And then um, they went, to, then she realized at some point that it was like, because there was another script that the other person would probably also get credit, but this happens all the time. So, you know, she felt that she did that pro- pretty much deserved first credit, but the other writer would probably be credited as and, and it went to arbitration in America and she got no credit at all. 
and the other writer who wrote the script, which like literally none of which appears in the film, has sole writing credit. So we all know that there are many circumstances in which the person that actually wrote a film and what's credited in the film, you know, differ. In the case of Kane, it's correct. The film is correctly credited to Mankiewicz and Wells. They wrote that screenplay together and they wrote it because Wells had a project that he wanted to make. And I think the honest truth of it is that without Wells, Kane would never have existed. Without Mankiewicz, it probably would have. And do you have a problem with Mank fundamentally because you think it's perpetuating? I mean, this is a, a conversation more for when I've actually seen it, yep. but do you, do you take a disliking to it because it's perpetuating something untrue? No, I had no, no. I mean, it's. I think there are things about it that I, that are untrue. But I think my main problem with it is, and we'll discuss this later, is that it should it should have been called Chubby hmm, Mank. Anyway, <laughs> but we'll come back to that. Back to the genius of Citizen Kane. Back to Citizen Kane. What um, what are what are the things that you enjoyed most about it? Well, as a filmmaker, um, actually, I find that watching something like Citizen Kane and noticing all the techniques that they're using and how they're using cinematography and how they're using editing actually deepens my appreciation for it. Um, so when I'm seeing things like them cutting between simple things like him clapping, there's a lot of stuff between like, just like, I, I think using audible sound or, or visual um, signals to move between one time and another or just one scene just making it all flow together all of that was just immensely impressive to me especially because like i said it invent i had to keep saying this invented this so and this has been talked to death but the the shot of the kids playing with the sled and then it pulling back and then the parents arguing about what to do with him and him being caught between them literally in the photography and like the the, the shot of it pushing in to the uh to the 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 people uh, working at the New Yorker, I mm. think, uh, and then it pulling out, and he's now accumulated all those uh, those people for his own newspaper, and it goes from a picture into real life. And I was still watching it, being like, I don't know how you did that, and even now I wouldn't know how I would go about making something like. That. It's things like that that I found immensely impressive. Do you know? I also do you do you know the famous story about how little. Wells knew about how to direct a film. Do you know this famous? So I don't. Okay, so it's a, just a lovely story um, because so much of it is to do with the cinematographer, and you know, Greg is such, such a brilliant cinematographer. And what happened apparently on the first, again, there are differing accounts of this. Somewhere very, very early on in the shoot, uh, it was apparent that Wells did not know how. The, the the visual language of film worked and he didn't understand crossing the line. You know, you know what crossing the line is. Crossing the line is just in case any, I, I imagine most people listening to this would know this, but in case you don't, um, crossing the line is to do with when you're showing a visual representation of things happening, there is a line that the camera is looking at so that you can tell which directions things it's are It's basically from. so that people can understand geography really easily. Exactly. The best way of describing it is just look at any conversation that's a shot over the shoulder and then reverse of any conversation, you'll notice that somebody's looking left to right and somebody's looking right to left. And that's just to demonstrate the geography of a situation. Because if somebody was looking left to right and then you cut and the other person was looking left to right, it would disorientate you. And now obviously this has been famously played with in order to do that on purpose. Yeah. Like my favorite example ever to bring up is in The Dark Knight when 
they purposely cross the line when the Joker says, we're not so similar. We're, we're, we're not so different. Yeah. Um, things like that to, to sort of subconsciously play with it. But a lot of the time, it's just very simple technique in order to make the audience understand the geography of a, of a place. Yeah. So it's basically like, it's like carpentry. And you can always break the rules of carpentry, but you have to understand them in order to break them. And again, that example of the Dark Knight is very good because it's an example of somebody who is deliberately breaking a rule for a point. Apparently what happened was that uh, after the first or second day, the rushes weren't cutting together. And um, Greg Tolland said, look, you do, do, you, do you understand how this works? And Wells said, because Wells got, but he said, no. So he said, okay, come with me. And they had an afternoon in which he showed him, it's a Western, I, I, the, I can't remember which Western it was. Or music, and he literally went, okay, here's how it works. The Indians are going that way. The Cowboys are going that way. See, watch how this goes. Watch how this goes. And they sat down and Wells learned the language of cinema from watching an existing and not massively revered, but very solidly made film and then he went, okay, fine, I get that now. And then he went off and he made Citizen Kane. And the genius- I love that. The, I love the, that that, that just, just describes like the idea that everything is inspired by something else and it doesn't need yes. to have come from a, a place of genius in order to inspire genius. Somebody just needs to be able to go, I understand what that is and I know how to use that now. But also it, it, it's, you know, one of my favorite phrases, I use this all the time now is never laugh at somebody for asking something. And I mean, God knows- Steven I, Spielberg has always said like, I love asking stupid questions. Well, there we go. There we go. It's and it's absolutely right. The fact that he would go, do you do you understand? No. Okay, let me show you how this works. You see this? I think actually the difference between somebody who's clever and who isn't is someone who isn't afraid to ask what might seem as a stupid question. Yeah. Again, you know, you're on fire, Jack. Yes. I mean, I'm just I'm I'm trying to find different ways of agreeing with you. But yes, abs <laughs> absolutely. And. There's a fame, there's a lovely story about Wells. Um, he was asked in one of those interviews. I mean, he's always very funny in, in interviews. I mean, he is kind of like the Beatles before the Beatles. You know, you see all those brilliant interviews of the Beatles on tour, particularly in America, when they're just hilarious because they're running rings around the journalists, but they're doing it in a way that's very funny, you know. And Wells was the same. When you see those interviews the morning after the War of the Worlds broadcast, and he's going, I had no idea. Really, I'm just, you know, I mean, it's, it's so mischievous. It's brilliant. But he was asked at one point, you know, how did you become Orson Welles? How did, how did you literally step on a soundstage, not even not understanding anything about how filmmaking and make Citizen Kane? I mean, how did you even have the, the chutzpah to do it? And Welles said, you know, my parents always, always told me I was brilliant and I just believed them. He said, literally every day, they just said to me, you're brilliant. You're just, you're great. You're really smart. And he said, and I just believed them. And he said, I, it didn't mean that I didn't know I didn't know things, but I always thought that I was, you know, that I was capable of doing things. I think what that sounds like to me is that he was brought up in a loving household yes. and, and given encouragement and yes. confidence, yeah. not arrogance. It sounds to me like he's somebody who believed that he was capable of, achieving something he wanted to achieve, which doesn't, to me, that shouldn't be rare. 
No. And, and it's a shame that it is. And it, it, the fact is, he probably was there. If you ever see, you know, me and Orson Welles, which is kind of cute, and I like that film, and, you know, but it's that thing, about, you know, I am Orson Welles and I own the store, all that stuff. I'm sure that he was given to that as much as as much as much anybody. But, you know, it's like the it's, it's like the thing about, you know, the problem with most films is they're not Citizen Kane, except Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane. And it's there comes a point when, I mean, it's very, very easy to do the mocking of, you know, Wells living his life backwards. You know, he starts out making Citizen Kane. He ends up making Sherry commercials. But firstly, that wipes out an entire body of work, which is really, really fascinating. Secondly, it 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 kind of underplays the fact that Kane is. And again, this is something I was talking about recently in Secret of Cinema. Have you, have you seen um, Tim Burton's film, Ed Wood? I haven't seen that. I think we spoke about this before. That's something I need to watch. Okay. So there's a lovely scene in in Edward. It's completely it's completely made up. That Edward is on the set of I think he must he's I, I can't remember whether he's whether he's making Plan Nine or Glenn or Glenda, but he's dressed in drag and Angora. And anyway, he has a fight with the producers and he storms out and he's really cross and he storms out and he walks into a bar. And there in the bar is Orson Wells, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, although his voice has been dubbed by somebody else. And it's a brilliant little portrayal of wells and edward walks over and he says mr wells you know you're such an inspiration do you mind if i sit down and join you and wells says no no, no sit and uh and he and he says i just you know i'm a filmmaker and i'm just trying to do this and uh, it might it's, you know it's just driving me mad and wells d'onofrio says the only film i ever had control over was kane after that you know they just you know, they they just told me, you know, pulled me in all these different ways. And he said, but the thing is, Ed, you've just got to, you've got to believe in your vision. You've got to, and he t- gives this little inspiring speech and Edward is so inspired by it that he gets up and he goes out and he makes Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is the worst film ever made, but he makes it, <laughs> of course it isn't, but he, makes it on, but he makes it in his way. And that never happened. It's a completely fictional thing. It was made up by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who are the screenwriters, who are brilliant writers. Um, but, I, but I love the idea of it. I love the idea of... Because uh, you know, you're right, again, it doesn't need to have literally happened. Yeah, exactly. It's like that's maybe maybe that's what Edwards maybe Edward heard that somewhere. Maybe maybe he was inspired by Orson Welles, but it's better in a film to go. Maybe he walks into a bar and he's just there because that's more a romantic idea, and this yeah. is a romantic film. I think there's I think there's, there's no basis in fact at all. It is just simply the idea of of Welles as the great genius, which I think he was who was savagely mistreated for most of his career by a studio system. Because, I mean, of course, famously in the case of Wells, RKO really were terrified about it because the, the, because the film clearly was inspired by um, William Randolph Hearst, because William Randolph Hearst was, you know, he was a Trump figure. He was, you know, a big, powerful bully. And uh, they, you know, they, they, he wanted the film to be not distributed. He wanted the film to be destroyed. There were attempts to completely suppress it. It, it because it famously did come out, but didn't come out in it, the cinemas that it should have. And Wells never had that freedom ever again. 
because he just he thumbed his nose at people in power and he pissed them off so much that his career never got back to that level of control again unless he was making projects that he was you know putting together on the shonk because he that was the only way he would have total control and that's why you think of wells when you think of people like terry gilliam doing lost in la mancha and that's why you think of wells when you you hear stories about people making making films they're on their own terms over years because because they will not accept any compromise. There is no part of Citizen Kane that looks to me like a committee told anyone what to yeah, do. But it's not a too many chefs situation. No, but it is a collaboration. It, it, it is absolutely a collaboration. You're making a bigger fool of yourself than I thought you would, Mr. Kane. I've got nothing to talk to you about. You licked. Why don't Get you? Get out if you want to see me have the warden write me a letter. If anybody else that'd say what's going to happen to you, it'd be a lesson to you. Only you're going to need more than one lesson. And you're going to get more than one lesson. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster Kane! I'm no cheap, crooked politician! Trying to save himself from the consequences of his crimes! Gettys! I'm gonna send you to Sing Sing! Sing Sing, get in! Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Look at all the wonderful things you have, Mr. Burns. King Arthur's Excalibur, the only existing nude photo of Mark Twain, and that rare first draft of the Constitution with the word suckers in it. Yes, yes, yes. So what? You want your bear bobo, don't you? Liar! I'll give you the threshing of a lifetime! Resistance is futile! Oh, God, how I want my bear. There's a couple of things that I wanted to sort of bring up with you. Yes, go ahead. Um... I want to see what your thoughts are. But I mean, first of all, it's interesting that I'm part of the generation that saw Citizen Kane after the Simpsons parodies. So I okay, was introduced which I've, which to, I've never seen. Right. So I was introduced to Citizen Kane via Sideshow Bob uh, having the imagery of him like rise to power. You know, that big stage with, uh, uh, you know, Kane written on it. it you know, yes. the one with this just Bob written on it and him manipulating everybody and going, you fools, into the microphone and they still elect him. Um, Mr. Burns has an entire episode <laughs> where he wants his 
uh, old Teddy Bobo back, which is their version of uh, Rosebud. Uh, and they and the way that they visually uh, replicate a lot of the stuff that's in Citizen Kane is... I watched the episode after watching the movie and was like, this is amazing how close they got. Like, even the, the shattered glass... Um, and having Mr. Smithers come in and next to it, just because it's the Simpsons, they've got a whole barrel full of like shatterproof uh, <laughs> snow globes. So many great things like that. And even even like Family Guy have an episode where they say Peter Griffin is, I don't know how familiar you are with Family Guy, but they have this thing where they say Peter Griffin was taping over the, the v- VHSs at Blockbuster and somebody starts watching Citizen Kane and it goes, Rosebud. And then he smashes the, the thing and it cuts to Peter Griffin going, it's his sled. It was his sled from when he was a kid. I'd have saved you long, two long boobless hours. And then it just cuts off. And so that's how I was introduced to Citizen Kane. Okay. Was just okay. the parodies. I, I, knew what, I knew what Rosebud was just because it was, it feels like I've always known what it was. Do you so know, it's interesting. Do you know, do you know, on. do you know where, I mean, I know there's more than one, but do you know where, where the, what is considered the Rosebud sled is? You know no, who? I have no idea. Steven Spielberg's got it. Oh, of course he does. I, I, that was going to be my guess. And there's, there's, there's now. I mean, obviously there is more than one. Uh, and the, but it's there's a whole thing about you know the the provenance of artifacts. But Steven Spielberg has at least one of the uh, of the rosebuds. And you say, of course he does. Of, of, of course co- he does. Of course he who does. else is going to have it? Um, the moment. I want us, me and you, to recreate the moment when Citizen Kane comes in and Susan's doing a puzzle because it just reminded me of lockdown. I don't know if anyone's made this comparison. Lovely. I'm sure they have. <laughs> I don't think so. But him just going like, puzzle. And she, and, 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 she, and she's just like, yeah. And it's, it, it, it all just feels like flatmates living together in lockdown. Like it was so funny to watch it this year and sort of have that projected onto it that was fucking hilarious and I, I think you and I should do a recreation of that when we get the chance when I was when I was working at Radio 1 back in the 90s when I was young and, and thin and, uh, and on getting the cover of Gay Life yeah um, uh, we had a we had, there was a film a movie show that I presented for many years and we had a uh, a news section in it and it was called News on the March and um and we got Richard E. Grant to come in and do Amazing. the news on the march thing because, of course, he absolutely loves. You know, he's he, he's in he's in love with Kane, same as everybody is. And uh, and I remember uh, the the powers that be at, at Radio One going, why? And I was just going, I I I, I can't. I'm not entirely sure that I can explain it to you in a way that will make sense. And this is referring to me, you know, never laugh at somebody for asking a question, but um, it was just like, just trust me, just, just trust me on this. People will know what it is. And if they don't, it's fine. Cause it's not, it's not, you know, it's just like, it's a thing. Why is it anyway? So it's, it was, it's been part of pop culture for such a long time that you know, every it is not possible any longer for for there to be a close up of a hand holding something that drops to the floor without every single person going. Okay. In fact, one of the shonkiest moments in Mank is when he's holding a bottle and he drops it and it falls to the floor, and you go, "Really? Right, really? Okay. Yeah." You know, it's making just... direct reference to it. There, <laughs> there are two other things in the movie that I want to have 
a little bit of a chat with you about. And the okay. first one is more of a point in the film that I forgot existed. Okay. And the other one is more of a sort of, I want to have a conversation, see what you think about this. Because it's not sure. something that's explained in the film. It's asking you a question. Okay. Um, the first is the jump scare. Okay. The, the, the bird that comes on screen that squawks okay. and it's got its eye missing and things like that. That moment I forgot existed and I've, I read about it afterwards and apparently Orson Welles said, wake the audience up. It's at a point in the film when I thought they might need a little moment to, to sort of jump out of their seats mm. to sort of re-engage with the film. It's got no other meaning. I just wanted to wake the audience up. And I, I was like, oh, wow. I, I know the moment. I've never heard the, the Wells story about it. So that's fascinating. So he said he put it there. He put it there in order to give them a bit of a kind of pep. That's what I could find oh. in terms of like oh, him, his explanation. I know obviously everyone else is talking about how, what it could represent and, and all the rest of it. And, but he was like, nah, there's no, there's no other meaning other than, than just to wake the audience well, up, that, which I don't that, subscribe to the idea that that doesn't mean you can't find meaning in it. I just think it's really interesting that he was like, I wanted to wake the audience up here because we're getting towards the end of the movie and I wanted to make sure they were still paying attention. That's a, that's a, it's also, that's a very Wells answer though, isn't it? It's got a, it's a practical thing. Um, it's a practical thing, which is just, come on, up you get, because here we go, fine. Okay, brilliant. No, thank you. That's a, 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 I didn't know that. And that's a great story. Yeah, I, I I just wanted to know what you thought of that because it's to me it was just like well, that was weird. I th- I mean I think that firstly I think that you you can never take any of Wells' answers completely at face value because he was the great you know I mean as we know I me mean, you know he made fake documentaries like nobody made fake documentaries which was brilliant I mean he he really understood the power of of mythology but it but in that particular case there is there is an odd honesty in saying I did it to wake the audience up because partly what you're doing is self-deprecatingly suggesting that the audience isn't paying, you know, they might be in it, but also, you know what? It's the kind, it's the kind of thing that Wells might have done. I yeah. mean, there's a, there's a, but it's just interesting that he chose a bird and that like it coincidentally, the way that they photographed it and overlaid it in those days, it made the bird's yeah. eye disappear, which gave it a very creepy look and yeah. it ends up taking on a meaning, but all of that would have been incidental. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, I think I've always thought about it as being some kind of symbolic because, because so much of what's going on at that point is about, you know, is about the character, the way, because the, because the character has an arc and the arc goes like that and you know, there's all the aspiration, and then all the disappointment. I mean, honestly, if you want to understand what Kane's really about, you've probably seen this already—the the video of Donald Trump explaining it. Have you ever seen this? <laughs> I haven't seen. Oh, that. it's just it's, honestly. <laughs> I just wasn't expecting that to be the sentence you said. Citizen Kane was really about accumulation, and at the end of the accumulation, you see what happens, and it's not necessarily all positive. not positive I think you learn in Cain that maybe wealth isn't everything because he had the wealth but he didn't have the happiness do you know what he thinks uh, the moral of Citizen Cain is get another wife I mean you know get another wife get another wife yeah the wrong woman 
Wrong woman. Oh wow! He literally, the whole the thing about the he said he says well you know yeah she you know she she there were things that you know she didn't he 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 got wealth and there were things that he got but she got but she got a lot out of it you know so you just get a get a better woman because you know she's the wow she's the wrong not thing. that he projected all of the his things onto her and no, made her pursue no. a career that she didn't there is want. A, there is a most genius discussion in which they ask him what rosebud means and he says. Rosebud. Well, it's the thing. No, I don't think anyone knows, and only anyone knows what rosebud means. You know, it's a, it's a word that means that. I don't think anyone. I know you know that. I don't think anyone knows that. The, but it's it's a word. And then he goes, it's a word. They, if they could have thought of another word that meant the same thing, but it wouldn't have had the power. And you're going, you are a fucking idiot. You are a fucking idiot because, firstly, you don't know <laughs> you don't actually know the backstory, famous backstory about where the word rosebud comes from. Secondly, it's not a fucking mystery what rosebud means. It's you know it's like because the you know the the popular law story law l o r e rather than is that rosebud is the name that uh, you know William Randolph Hearst used to describe Marion Davis's uh, doodah. It was the, a private, intimate thing. That, that was there as a snub, you know, as a kind of thumbing his nose. Now, the point is, whether that story is true or not doesn't make any difference. It's the idea that it was true was a sort of fanciful idea that people involved in the film kind of quite liked, that it was another way of the film snipping at the thing. But the thing, if they could think of another word that meant the same thing, it wouldn't have meant... It's like, fuck off, you fucking ass. Mental. You literally I can't, never I'm so thought- excited to not hear about him anymore and honestly it it was even hard to even just listen to an impression won't it be great won't it be great when he's just in prison the rest of his yeah in prison is what i was gonna say however your impression of donald trump has led me on to the the last thing that i'd like to ask you about because they do offer it as a question and i think it is a multiple choice sort of like figure out yourself what does it mean to you type situation i wanted to know what you think about why he says rosebud because it's obviously the reveal is it was his sled when he was a kid, yeah. but that's just the physical answer. Okay. Why do you think that because Citizen it, Kane okay, said so Rosebud at the end? At, at the risk at the beginning. Of, okay, at the risk of doing a reductio ad absurdum, this is what it means. Because I understand mm-hmm. that you know, obviously, I just want to know your interpretation. Okay, so my interpretation of it is, it is the memory of the of the one moment in his life when he actually was and is loved, and he loves. It's the memory of of the of the loving and loved life that he had as a child, and everything that has subsequently been lost as a result of it. So it's a thing which takes him back to, and it's not just the thing about the moment of innocence and the blah 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 blah. It is to do with loving and being loved, because of course the whole of the rest of the trajectory of the film is not about him being unloved. It is about his own inability to love. It is about the way in which he loses that. It's not that people don't love him. It's that he doesn't love anything. And what he's remembering is a moment when he did, when he loved and, and was loved. And that's what, that's what it, that to me is what it means. I, I tend to completely agree with that. I think the only thing I would add personally from what I think about it is that it's kind of a mix between it's like a bittersweet thing. It's it's him going, that was the last moment. And I didn't know at the time, but that was the last moment I ever felt home and safe. And like you say, loved. 
And he wasn't aware at the time that that would be the last moment he ever felt those things. So yeah. I think it's sort of mixed between trauma and sure. uh, a pleasant memory of what that felt like. And actually watching it, knowing full well what Rosebud is in terms of it being the sled, it's not it's not trying to trick you at any point. No. Like it's even using like the new sled that he gets when he goes to the rich uh, adoptive father's house to, to demonstrate this isn't the same. I've lost something. There's, there's something that isn't the same anymore. It's a little bit like, and we've talked about this before, how when you watch Arrival, it's a different film the second time. Yes. When you watch Citizen Kane, knowing what the, the sled is, then you know what Rosebud is the entire time. It's it's feeding you that the entire time. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think it's sort of a, a bittersweet memory for him where he, uh, yeah, and I don't want to yeah, over explain it too much. You don't care about anything except you. You just want to persuade people that you love them so much that they ought to love you back. Only you want love on your own terms. It's something to be played your way according to your rules. Well, look, we went all the way around the houses, but the fact is that when you talk about Cain, that is what happens because it is kind of everything is all in there. It is, it's, it's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. It is, I, I, honestly, I kept changing what I was, like I said earlier, like it was making me think of different filmmakers and writers the entire time. And I kept going, oh, it's a little bit like Henry Hill. Oh, he's a little bit like Jordan Belfort. Oh, it's a little bit like Granby de Best Hotel. It's a little bit like, and I just kept finding things in it that it reminded me of that I love now. And I think the, the, the best way of describing it is it's, just because everybody has been inspired by it in one way or another. And I'll say this is a last, a closing thought. We haven't really talked about this, but it is also the best depiction of journalism that I have ever seen. It is, it, it is a really brilliant depiction of the way that journalism works in the, in, in the post, you know, in, in the modern era. Yes, it is a film. And again, it's just really hilarious that in a world in which fake news has become a thing because of because of Trump, it is amazing how Kane kind of laid all that out. And you go, you know, I mean, what I would love is it's like the final scene in Psycho, you know, when Norman Bates is sitting in the cell on his own and he's talking to himself and he's saying, you know, if I just... Uh, you know, if I, if I, they'll see that I'm a nice person. I wouldn't even hurt a fly, you know. And what I'm, what I would love is for Trump to be in a cell with Citizen Kane playing on hard rotation, like literally 24 hours a day until finally it dawns on him that it was all there in front of him and he just couldn't see it. The word Rosebud, for whatever reason, has captivated moviegoers and movie watchers for so many years, and to this day is perhaps the single word. And perhaps if they came up with another word that meant the same thing, it wouldn't have worked. But Rosebud works. I think that's a nice moment to leave it on. It is. Lovely to speak to you. Um, I'm very much looking forward to you after you've, spoken, after you've seen Mank, and then we can have a bit of a... We'll return and we'll 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 have, we'll have I it think out. You're, I think you're going to like it. Okay. I think you're going to like it. It'll All right. Be, well, yeah. that'll be interesting. Let's let's see how we feel. All right, Jack. Lots of is love. Is that going to be our final one before the new year? Is that what we is that is that our plan? Well, let's see how it goes. I mean, you know, I mean, who? Hey, it, in the world we're living in today, you know, one of the things that just happened recently, a Namibian politician called Adolf Hitler 
just won an election yesterday. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But here's the strangest thing. In 2020, that's really not a big deal anymore. Somebody <laughs> called Adolf Hitler. The fact that I hadn't heard elected. of that yet. That's bizarre. Just Google it. I'm not even making it up. It's on the BBC. Anyway, Jack, fabulous to our, speak to you. I realise uh, as well that our look, our look ahead for 2020, if people just play that again for 2021, we're essentially looking forward to the same films. So I think, what Jack, here's what we'll do. We will do... Let's do a podcast in which we look back at the year that kind of was and wasn't, and we look forward to the year because this is because you're right. I mean, when we look at what we thought 2020 was going to be like, you know, we had no idea. So let's we'll have a we'll and especially have a big... now with the news that Warner Brothers are going to be releasing all of their films simultaneously on HBO Max and in theatres and whatever that means for us because obviously we, d- we don't have HBO Max but the no. fact that that's going to be happening that's a huge thing to, to be ju- changing in the coming year and I want to hear what you think about that just like to say somebody forwarded me, a, forwarded me a blog that I did in 2009 that said simultaneous distribution is coming you, you can like it or lump it it's coming it is the future and you can't run from it and uh there we go. So you and I will Always do... Always believe the word, word of Kermode. You and I will do... No, never do that. Never, ever do that. <laughs> you and I will do an, an end of year, look back and look forward before, you know, between now and the end of the year. And then we'll also talk about Mank. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can join me in doing this, Jack, because you do this better than I do. What are, the, what are the things you say at the end of a podcast? If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe. Thanks for listening. Yeah, make sure you subscribe. Tell your friends. Follow us yep. on the uh, the Kermode on Film Patreon. Suggest any things that you want us to talk about on Twitter. Yep. We've taken some of your suggestions before. I'm at Jack Howard. I'm at Kermode Movie. Uh, and there is also an, an at, Kerm- at Kermode on Film thing. There is an at Kermode on Film. At Kermode on Film, yeah. And uh, yeah, so do all of those things. And, and keep watching it- the skies. There we go. There we go. And Lo, the crown was passed. (laughs) (laughs) A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.